The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Corrected translation there. One who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. This passage is very important because it relates to an important doctrine called the impeccability of Jesus. The impeccability of Jesus Christ. Now, this word, peccable, comes from the Latin word peccare, which means to sin. So, impeccability refers to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, His perfection. Now, Christ was completely free from all three categories of sin that affect the human race. First of all, He was free from Adam's original sin. Adam's original sin is passed down through the male. That is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Virgin conception and virgin birth. Because it blocked the relationship with the male from whence he would have gained a sin nature. So he is free from Adam's original sin because there was no sin nature. No inherited or acquired sin, genetically acquired sin nature. And then third, there was no personal sin, which is the subject of this verse. So Christ is free of all three categories of sin in the human race. Now what this verse tells us is that Christ was tempted or tested. Now this is the Greek word that we've studied on Wednesday nights in our study of James. Parazo. This is the verb form. And it means to test. Now sometimes when you, when you get the idea of temptation... There is an external test, the bait in a trap. It's the external test. Then there is the internal response. Now, sometimes the external test out here may draw an internal response from our sin nature and we respond by lusting after it. We've begun to fail the test at that point and let the sin nature control now, that's why we, we often think of this as, as temptation. But Jesus is never drawn lustfully towards sin. This is not talking about this internal aspect. The parallel is with Adam. Adam and Eve. They're placed in the Garden of Eden and there's a tree. I'm not a great artist. The tree has a piece of fruit. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are given a test in the garden. They are perfect, remember. There's no sin nature in Adam and Eve. Believe me, none of us can relate. No one. None of us. Eve comes along and takes a look at that fruit, and she's kind of wondering about it, and the serpent comes along and says, Listen, God really hasn't told you the truth. That's the implication of the sentence, anyway. Says, has God said that you can't eat of that? 
Does God really know what He's talking about? That's the nuance there. He's questioning the goodness of God. Has He really provided you everything? You know, if you ate of that, you would be just like God. God is holding something back from you. Now, at this point, Eve still hasn't sinned. She's looking on it and she finds it attractive. But there's only one sin that they could commit in the garden. That one sin that they could commit was to eat. Because the command was, Thou shalt not eat. Didn't say anything about touching, looking, wanting, desiring. No sin was committed until they reached out, grabbed it, and chomped into it. So Eve looks at that and she found it desirable to the eyes and the Scripture says she took it ate. At that point she became a sinner. But up to that point, she has no sin nature. Minus a sin nature. So all she's got is the external test. The bait in the trap. In the same way, and this parallel is very important, the Lord Jesus Christ has no sin nature. He is minus a sin nature. He's tested in every category of testing, just like we are, yet without sin. What that means is that all kinds of tests were faced by the Lord. Every category of external bait was laid out there to try to get Him to sin. But He did not sin. The first Adam sinned, but the second Adam did not sin. He is true humanity just as Adam was created true humanity. You and I are somewhat distorted because of the depravity of the sin nature. Jesus Christ was created perfect humanity. True humanity. So we look at the doctrine of impeccability and what we find is that in His deity, number one, Jesus could not be tempted. And secondly, in His deity, He cannot sin. That relates to deity. In His humanity, He could be tempted. And He could sin. Because humanity can sin. But these were united together in one person. So the conclusion to that is that as the God-man, Jesus Christ cannot sin. He could not sin. But He could, because of His humanity, could be tested. This is the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. The result is that Jesus was able to do this because of His dependence on the Holy Spirit. And the lesson from all of this is that Jesus Christ in His humanity, as He lived out His spiritual life in His humanity, He did it exclusively in the power of the Holy Spirit. This was something unique in all of human history. Never before in all of human history was anyone uh, indwelt or filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, 
there was a, a temporary endowment by the Holy Spirit. For certain people who were leaders in Israel, they were either religious leaders or political leaders or military leaders, but it was temporary and the endowment was always related to fulfilling their function as a leader. For example, one of the first was a man named Bezalel. Bezalel was an artisan. He had great skill with gold and with silver and with jewels. He was a man that, that would make uh, uh, Harry Winston look like a, 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 an amateur when it came to working with jewels. He was brilliant. But that brilliance did not really come from him because he had a skill that came from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him that special ability to work with the gold, the silver, and the jewels. It's very interesting, just a little sidelight, one of these things you get just a free added attraction this Sunday morning, is that this word for skill, I'm going to misspell it, is the Hebrew word, Chachma. C H O K M A H, which is normally translated wisdom. What's the relationship, you ask? Wisdom, as the Bible understands wisdom, you read through Proverbs, this is the word there over and over again for wisdom. Where do you get wisdom? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with understanding Bible doctrine and its importance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, as you learn doctrine and you assimilate it into your soul, the output of that is skillful living in terms of divine viewpoint. Living within the plan of God. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a skill. What do you do to develop a skill? You practice it over and over and over again. And then it becomes a skill. You look at people who are get out ice skaters or a- athletes, uh, um, anybody who, who has developed their particular art to a, to a high degree of perfection, and you see the skill that's there. And it comes from hours and hours and hours of practice and dedication and commitment. The Bible would call their skill... Now, there's an application there for the believer that if you want wisdom in your life, it comes as a result of hours and hours of practice and skill through the filling of the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, there was the temporary endowment for leaders, some kings, prophets, a few others, but all in all, not more than probably 60 or 70 individuals throughout the entire Old Testament were endued by the Holy Spirit. So this is unique. Jesus Christ comes, He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and He is going to model for us, set the precedent, be our example for the church age of how to live the spiritual life in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That's what's important. Beyond the the critical primary task of Jesus coming to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, He sets the precedent and example for the spiritual life of the church age. Other passages that relate to the uh, doctrine of the hypostatic union are Romans 1, 3-5. 
concerning His Son, which the term Son is a title of deity, concerning His Son who was born from the seed of David according to the flesh, that's humanity, who has been demonstrated the Son of God by means of power according to the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So Romans 1, 3-5 through expresses the doctrine of hypostatic union. Romans 9, 5. And from whom is the Christ, that's a title for His humanity, Messiah, insofar as the flesh is concerned, who is God, sovereign over all. Let me read that again. And from whom is the Christ, insofar as the flesh is concerned, who is God, sovereign over all. 1 Timothy 3.16 And by common acknowledgement, great is the mystery of the spiritual life. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Hebrews 2.15 Therefore, since children share blood and flesh, he also partook of the same nature, in order that through death he would neutralize Satan who had the power of death. Once again, this expresses his humanity and deity. Romans 1, 3 through 5, Romans 9, 5, 1 Timothy 3, 16, and Hebrews 2, 14. All express the, the union of deity, undiminished deity, and true humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So, how did this happen? How, what were the mechanics? The virgin conception, and birth. Now, what happens in the process of conception is that once a month, the female releases an egg. This egg has 46 chromosomes. During the process, it throws off 23 of those chromosomes in a process called meiosis. What this throws off are referred to as polar bodies. So in the process of meiosis in combination with the polar bodies, it divests itself of 23 chromosomes. This is a process of purification. So that this becomes the only cell in, the human body, in any human body that is purified minus a sin nature. Then the sperm comes along and fertilizes that egg and provides another 23 chromosomes in conception. You have the beginnings of biological life within the womb. But part of these 23 chromosomes, you find the genetically transmitted sin nature. So that now when biological life is fertilized and you have conception in the womb, you have the presence of a sin nature. Now what happened in the virgin conception was that God the Holy Spirit, there was no human male involved in this process, God the Holy Spirit created these 23 chromosomes and fertilized the egg within Mary so that there is no sin nature transmitted to that egg so then there were 46 perfect chromosomes. 46 perfect chromosomes so that Jesus Christ, when He was born, was true humanity without the stain of, of a sin nature or Adam's original sin. And throughout His life, He committed no personal sin. 
So that's how it took place. When the Word became flesh, it took place through the miraculous involvement of God the Holy Spirit in the virgin conception. We often talk about the virgin birth, but that's not really what's important. What's important is the virgin conception. So why is it so important to study the hypostatic union? This is a big word, and I know it's hard for some of you. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get, it seems like I get carried away with all these big, fancy theological terms. Let me read something to you that came across my uh, desk this week. For most of us, if you have computers, you know it's tough to learn computers. We talked about that the other night. But what if people bought cars like they buy computers? I think you can make the jump in this analogy to what I'm talking about. What if people bought cars like they bought computers? Helpline. General Motors Helpline, how can I help you? Customer. I got in my car and closed the door and nothing happened. Helpline. Well, did you put the key in the ignition slot and turn it on? Customer. What's an ignition? Helpline. It's a starter motor that draws current from your battery and turns over the engine. Customer. Ignition? Motor? Battery? Engine? How come I have to know all these technical terms just to use my car? Atonement. Redemption. Propitiation. Sanctification. Hypostatic union. Why do I have to know all these words to have the spiritual life? Because words are important. Words are the tools of thought. Many of these words are the words that God revealed His Word with. Those words are important. Every single word of Scripture is inspired by God. There's an analogy with the creation week. In the creation week, God created the sun, and he called it the sun. The moon, he called it the moon. Not in English, but in whatever language God initiated with Adam. He initiated Adam's vocabulary. The night, the day, morning and evening, day one, day two. Basic vocabulary words were initiated by God. And then what happened? God, because he created man in the image of God, part of which includes initiative and creativity gave Adam the responsibility to name the animals. God started the process and then man was to use his brain and his intellect to take the general things that God had given and to develop them and to develop all of the identifications we have in modern taxonomy in relationship to naming the animal kingdom and then everything else in life. Everything has a proper name and term and designation. The same is true for Christianity. But I'm just amazed at how many Christians who get so upset that as soon as you start teaching the Bible, it's just like this illustration. Redemption, atonement, propitiation. Why do I have to learn all these words? Because they're in the Bible. Because if you're a believer, there are things you have to learn about God. And you have to learn God's vocabulary. You have to learn the vocabulary associated with Christianity and the Bible in order to be able to think about it. Just as you do in any endeavor of life. I'll tell you what. If any of you went to the doctor this week and you were diagnosed with some form of cancer and the doctor started using words like metastasis and biopsy and a lot of other words that were unfamiliar to you, I bet within 24 hours you'd be finding a dictionary and you'd be looking up all those words to make sure you understood exactly what that doctor meant 
Because what He meant and, and the application of that would be life to you. Well, let me tell you, this is more life than that. And so it's vital for you and me to understand all of these words and terms and make them a part of our thinking and our soul so that we can accurately understand what God has said to us in His Word. So the importance of the hypostatic union relates to two areas. First of all, it was necessary for Christ in order for Him to be the perfect revealer of God to mankind. Only deity can reveal deity. But Christ also had had to be human in order to give that revelation in a manner that human beings could grasp. John 1.18 says that, that Jesus was the... No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. He has revealed Him. That's John 1.18. Second purpose, it was necessary to accomplish salvation. The Redeemer had to be both true humanity in order to die as a substitute for mankind... And he had, undi- had to be undiminished deity because as deity, his, sub- his sacrifice would have infinite value. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 and Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. So John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten, the uniquely born one, that should be translated from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a very interesting concept here. He says that He became flesh and dwelt. This is the same word that's used to describe the tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place. So, the Lord took up a a dwelling place here. And then He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The Gospel writer makes it very clear that he's involved in this. He dwelt among us. I was one of those who saw His dwelling among us, and we, I beheld His glory. Now, what glory is John talking about here? Well, often we think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Boy, there's another one of those big words. The Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Jesus took John, James, and Peter with Him to the top of the mountain, and there He revealed Himself in all of His glory. just flashed forth. They saw Him not as the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but as God, who He was. And you would think that if Jesus is saying here, we beheld... I mean, if John is saying here, we beheld His glory, He would be thinking about the fact that, man, on the Mount of Transfiguration, I saw His glory. That's not what He's saying. And this is the only Gospel that doesn't mention the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there. For John, there's a very different concept of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's a profound one. And it's something that has tremendous application for each of us. We beheld His glory. Now, first of all, let's understand the word behold. It's the Greek word theaomai. Theaomai. T-H-E-A-O-M-A-I. Theaomai. And it means to look at something to see it, but more than just glancing over and saying, I see it, it has the idea of contemplation, rumination, cogitation, and meditation. It doesn't mean to simply glance at something, but to observe it very, very carefully, and then to reflect on it and to contemplate on its meaning and significance. So he's not saying that we just looked at this and saw it, 
But we really thought about this. I carefully observed it over and over and over again for those three years plus that I was with the Lord Jesus Christ. I meditated on it. Now, what does he mean by glory? Well, if you just were to turn over a page or two to 2.11, we see his first miracle. He turns the water into wine. John says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and what? Manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, was the Shekinah glory present at the wedding in Cana? No. It's an everyday event. It was just a wedding. Jesus was there. He really hadn't started his ministry yet, and his mother comes to him and says, Now, son, you know, we've run out of wine. What are we going to do about this? And Jesus says, Woman, it's not my time yet. She pressed him, and in respect for her, he transformed the water into wine. Best wine there ever was. Better than a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild or Chateau Margaux. It's incredible wine. But there was no flashing forth of his glory. Nobody knew that he did it. The head waiter said, Where in the world did you get this good wine? It was done in private. But the disciples knew what had happened. It was just an everyday event. This is the concept that John has of how Jesus demonstrated His glory. In everyday situations, day in, day out circumstances, Jesus was concerned with supplying the needs of people. He supplied their physical needs as a training aid to show that He could supply their spiritual needs. There's no fireworks involved here. It's just simple, everyday actions. We see it again in John 11:4 in the situation with Lazarus. Jesus said, this is a sickness for the glory of God. And if you look at the context, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that He resuscitates Lazarus and brings him back from the dead. But there's no flashing forth of the glory of Christ there in the way we think of it in terms of the Shekinah glory. But we see His glory in the way that He's dealing with people's needs on a day-to-day basis. And His concern for Mary and Martha and the family. I mean, that's a remarkable episode that few people really understand. Here Jesus comes to them. He delays and delays because, as He said, the sickness is for the glory of God. He takes His time and He gets there. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And... and, uh, 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 Martha comes running out and says, Lord, you know, if he had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? You say, well, Lord, you know I do. He's trying to stabilize her emotions with doctrine. It's a key point. Anytime anybody goes through grief, sit down lovingly, caringly, focus on Scripture. Scripture stabilizes our emotions at times of grief. Jesus looks around and everybody's upset. They're falling to pieces. They're weeping. In the typical Jewish manner, they're weeping and wailing. They're very uh, demonstrative in their grief and in their emotions. And what happens? It says Jesus wept. Everybody ought to memorize that passage. It's real easy. Why did Jesus weep? Was He grieving over Lazarus? No. He knows that in just five or six minutes, He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to come forth. Jesus sees the needs of the people, the compassion, the heartache, the misery that they're feeling because they've experienced the loss of death. Man was never designed to die. He was created in the garden, had the tree of life. He could have lived forever except he sinned. 
Death is the punishment for sin. Death is abnormal. Every time you hear about somebody dying, the first thought that ought to come into your mind is, this is the consequence of sin. That's the point of death. It reminds us that there's sin in the world. And Jesus weeps because of His compassion for the pain and misery the human race endures because of sin. That's how God's glorified. That's the glory that John thinks of. It's the everyday events as Jesus ministers to the needs of people. Third verse, John 12:23, referring to the cross, our Lord said, The hour has come, the Son is glorified. How is He glorified? Did we see the Shekinah glory on the cross? No, we did not. What happened on the cross is He paid the penalty for our sins. How was Jesus' glory manifested? It was manifested by taking care of the needs of mankind. That is John's concept. Day in and day out we saw God's love for mankind in the person and the work of Jesus Christ throughout His three years of public ministry. We beheld His glory. The glories of the only unique Son and He was full of grace and truth. We'll finish there this morning and then next Sunday we'll take up with the witness of John and study the seven witnesses in the Gospel of John and how that applies to the doctrine of witnessing. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You so much for the fact that You have loved us with an incredible love, not based on who and what we are, but on who and what You are. That You sent Your Son to die on the cross as our substitute. Now, Father, right now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I pray that if there is anyone here right now who is not sure of where they will spend eternity, that they would take the opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. It is not faith in the church. It is not faith in works. It is not faith in ritual. It is faith alone in Christ alone. He alone saves. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul and Silas how to be saved, the response was simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Now, Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to reflect on these incredible truths of your word. How you sent your Son, the second person of the Trinity, eternal and infinite, and how He became a man, how the infinite became finite, and how the eternal became temporal. He went to the cross as a true man and died there in our place that we might have eternal life. Throughout His life, He set a pattern, a precedent, a model, an example for our lives that we might learn how to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit for Your glory. Pray that we might Focus on this, that the Holy Spirit would drive these truths home to us and reveal them to us and remind us of them as we go throughout our week. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.